In Sunday school this morning, if you were there in that small group ministry, you started a new series of lessons called One Month to Live. And over the next few weeks, over the next 30 days, what we're going to challenge you to do and what I'm going to challenge myself to do is to live the next 30 days as if they were my last 30 days on earth. Now, some people say, well, that's, a, that's a quite a morbid thought, Pastor. I, I don't want to think about the end of my days. But here's the thing. When you really begin to analyze that question or think about the question, what would I do if I had 30 days left to live? Everything else begins to fade away, and there is extreme clarity. You know, Susan and I have walked in the last few weeks through a time when her mother knew that her end was coming, that the end was approaching, and we appreciate the prayers and the thoughts and the cards and all the kind words from you as a church. But one of the things that I learned in walking with that through, or walking through that with my wife Susan and with her mom, Marilyn, is that when those final days were announced, when she knew that she had a short time left to live, she talked about some things that she would do differently. She talked about some things that she would live differently. She remembered that there was things more important than what she had been living for. And my prayer for you over the next few days really is this, is that you would take this challenge, we're going to talk about that in the sermon a little bit, seriously. And that you would live your life as if these were the last days you had on earth. What would you say differently? What would you do differently? How would you spend your time differently? How would you spend your money differently? What would you do differently? And then the question really is, why aren't you doing that anyways? You see, I think what we're going to have over the next 30 days is an unbelievable opportunity, a precious gift from God to determine how we would live if we knew we were dying. In fact, I really think it would change how we would live. And that's what I'm going to challenge you this morning. And we're going to read together. We're going to study together. We're going to talk together. And what I'm asking you is to take this challenge seriously and to ask yourself, how would you live if you knew you had 30 days left? What would life look like if you were to truly live like you were dying? This past week, we have dealt with the death in our family. And, and on Monday, I had the, the great privilege of standing at the graveside of Marilyn Jett where her body would be laid to rest and proclaiming God's Word from that place. And as some of you that were in Sunday school saw today in the video, they talked about a cemetery being kind of an interesting place. And as I was there, I did take a moment as I was walking away from that place to glance at the tombstones as I went. And as the author of the book, One Month to Live, Carrie Shook talks about, it is amazing that our lives, in the end, when it comes down to the very last day, are really wrapped up in two numbers and a dash. For me, the first number I know, February 3rd, 1976, will be on that tombstone. I do not yet know that final date, and the chances are I won't until it has happened. But what I'm in the midst of right now is living the dash. That in that moment between, that is what I'm about and doing right now. And the question that we want to ask over the next 30 days is, am I doing all that I can living as God called me to live in the midst of the dash? 
When I was in college, I took a class in photography because I got to the last semester of my senior year and somehow my advisor had forgot to tell me I had to have another fine arts to graduate. Well, when I'd already been accepted to seminary, Susan and I were getting married that summer and moving to Dallas, I figured I might want to graduate. And so I went to him and I said, I've got to have a fine arts class. And the only fine arts class available were advanced drawing two. Now, my best drawings are stick men. And I knew that if it were basic drawing that looks terrible, one, I might be all right. Or photography. Well, I thought, photography, I can get a camera. That's no problem. I can take some pictures. Well, I got into the class, and they didn't tell me that we had a special guest lecturer that year. And that lecturer, the teacher for that class, was the editor-in-chief for photography for Christianity Today magazine. I did not realize that we were going to have to buy a $250 camera, manually adjust all of the focused and f-stops and shutter speeds and all of that, develop our own film, mat them, and place them in a gallery to be exposed to the world. Now, somehow when I got through the first day, I realized that me taking a picture of my roommate was not going to suffice. And so, with every artistic bone I have in my body, which I think is half of one, I decided to try to find a subject to take pictures of. Just on the outskirts of Jackson, Tennessee, there's this old church cemetery. And I walked through that cemetery and I took pictures of tombstones that were from the 1800s. And I thought to myself, I wonder what they did with their lives. Now here's the reality. Most of us in this room, and I don't want to be depressing at any moment for right now, but most of us in this room, when we are gone two or three generations, there will be very few people who will remember us here. You know, when Jesus talks about storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, part of the reason that that's a wise investment we talked about two weeks ago is because whatever your investment here is here on earth, very few of us will have a legacy that goes beyond a couple of generations. I mean, the reality is I have a great family, godly family, God-fearing family, but I know very little about any of my family that came before my grandparents. I'm thankful to them. I'm glad for the godly heritage, but I don't know about their lives and their desires and their hopes and their wishes. And so the reality is, on this side of heaven, what we invest in on earth, if we're not careful, will fade away very quickly. And so the question becomes, how do we live that dash to make an impact? And the only thing that I can think of that can truly make an impact for most of us is not to live that dash to make an impact on this earth, but to live that dash to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Because that is what lasts. On your handouts, or if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 10, verse 10. A very familiar verse, but a verse that I want us to think about for a moment because it is a verse that, that many of us have read but not thought through the ramifications. We haven't thought through what it means. We haven't thought through how we ought to live because of it. We haven't thought through what Jesus means here. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Now tell me, who is the thief? Satan, right? 
the devil. I listened to uh, Dr. Oldham's uh, sermon last week, and I appreciate uh, Dr. Oldham coming and filling in for me. Uh, I called him on uh, late notice, end of last week, and I just appreciate greatly him being here. But I, I listened to him talk about the fact that we have an enemy that is real and personal, that Satan is there to get us off our route, if you will, to derail us from what God intends. And it says in that passage that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He wants to steal our joy. He wants to kill our motivation. He wants to destroy our lives. And then the second part says, but I have come. Now, who is the I there? Jesus, right? Who is the I there? Jesus has come to give us life and give it more abundantly. That's his purpose. One of his purpose statements on earth was to give us a life that is abundant. Now, I like the way the message paraphrase puts this. It says, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Now, here's the reality. I don't know what your life is like. And the truth is, as much as you can know anybody else in this room, as close as you think you can be to them as a friend, none of us really know what each other's lives are really like. But I'm going to bet that for a large percentage of you in this room today, that there is something in your life that you wish were just better. That you wish you had more. And I'm not talking about physical stuff. I'm not talking about financial stuff. I'm talking about just inside where you are, living as you do day to day, that something within your soul knows that there's something more to this life than you're experiencing. And what Jesus says in John chapter 10 is, I am the one who has come to give you that life overflowing, abundant, more than you can ask or imagine, greater than you can even anticipate. I want to give you what you can't even imagine having. Now, in other parts of the New Testament, it tells us that one of the reasons Jesus came was to show us how to live that life. I want to tell you that one of the reasons Jesus is such an interesting guy to study, one of the interesting things about Jesus that makes him so important to study is that he lived the most fulfilling, wonderful life this earth has ever seen. Now, it's kind of crazy to think about that because he only lived about as long as I already have lived. You see, we think sometimes in our lives that great lives have to go on and on, and the truth is that none of us are promised any amount of days, but Jesus only lived to be about 33, 33 and a half years old, but he packed into those years some of the greatest life experiences you could imagine and put all that together for the most enjoyable, fun, filled life you could have. Joy beyond measure. Now what's even more interesting about that is the way his life ended. Think about that. Here was the guy that told us he wanted to show us how to have life to the full, and his life ended on a cross, dying for you and me. And when he gets to the end of the life, he realizes he has accomplished everything in life that he wanted to accomplish. He is like what is said about David when it said that David served God in his generation, and then when he was done, he went to be with the Lord. Jesus is on that cross. He has done all that he is called to do. He has lived life to the absolute fullest. And when he gets to that moment, he says, It is finished. Now the truth is he is talking theologically there. He is telling us about our sins. He is talking about what he has done on the cross. But I also believe that what he was saying is he has finished what God gave him to do. And knowing at the end of his life that he had done absolutely everything he could do with that dash is what made Jesus able to say, it is 
finished. And so what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, few days, is we're going to ask the question, how did Jesus live? And we're going to ask the question, what would you do differently if you had one month to live? Let me give you kind of the outline. The, today is kind of an overview day, and we're going to talk about the four things we're going to cover in the next four weeks, but we're going to hit on them briefly today, and then you're going to read about them, and we're going to talk about them in our community groups, in our small groups, in our Sunday school classes, and then also we're going to talk about them in worship on Sunday mornings. But the four things that we find, first of all, is that Jesus lived passionately. Jesus lived passionately. Let me tell you when I knew I'd like the book that I, you're going to, that everybody in this congregation that we're going to give you to read over the next 30 days. When I knew that I liked the book, when I was when I opened it up, and about the third day it talked about the passion that Jesus lived with. Now those of you that have been around for a little while know I like the word passion. I like to talk about being passionately devoted. And I get that because I believe Jesus lived with passion. That He took each day as a gift from God. That He experienced passion in His life. He lived for the Lord. He gave everything He had. And the truth is, if we are going to live as God has called us to live, it will be a passionate existence. It will be life to the fullest. Think of what 1 John 5, 11-12 says on the handout. It says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's almost as if God is doing a little bit of a deal or no deal thing there, right? How many of you have seen that show? Let me see your hands, all right? We've talked about it a little bit before. Deal or no deal, Howie Mandel comes out. They show him some money. They say they take some money off. Do you want the deal or no deal? Somebody pushes the button or they get the money, whatever. It's almost like God says here, John is writing, that God has laid it out there and says, here you go. If you want to live life to the fullest, the first requirement is you must be a follower of Jesus Christ. Deal or no deal. Everything else is built on that. Every other foundation is built on that. But let me tell you what happens. When you give your life to Christ, the next step ought to be that your life becomes so focused on doing what He would have you to do, to live as He would have you to live, that you have a passionate existence of following Him, that everything else becomes secondary. I'll tell you, one of the biggest problems I see in churches today, I see in uh, people today that, are, that call themselves Christians, is that they just kind of live a boring life. They live a boring life. Now, you know, I've told you before that when they asked some non-Christians what they thought about Christians, what words came to mind, one of the three words that came to mind most often was boring. And sometimes I get a little upset, but then I realize that we resemble that remark, right? That there are times in our lives when we live in a boring way. It's almost as if we think this is just something we're just kind of going through. It's just the motions. We just, day after day, we pay the bills, we go to work, we come home, we feed the kids, we put the kids to bed, we lay down, we watch the show, we go to bed, we get up the next morning, and day after day after day after day, it's just one thing after another. You come to church because that's your Sunday thing. You get up on Sunday morning, you yell at the kids to get ready, you get in the car, you get here, you get all ruffled up, you get to your different classes, you sit in your Sunday school class and you hear one lecture, and then you get up and you come to church and Cliff gets on to you for not singing, so you sing a little bit, even though you don't really care about it. 
And then you say, all right, how long is Bilal going to go today? How, where are we going to eat? What's going to happen? And you just kind of do it. The thing is that when you live a life passionately devoted to the Lord, you don't live your life in a boring way. You live with passion. You see, the problem is that most of us in this room have fallen victim to the, the kind of waiting till the next thing syndrome. The someday syndrome. And what happens is life moves so quickly that before long, we're wishing we could slow it down because it's just gone by too quickly. There are just those certain days, and those of you that are parents or grandparents know this, when you just look at your kids and you think they've grown two years overnight. Like, when did that happen? I was actually getting Luke up from a nap, I think, and picked him up out of the the bed and was carrying him, and I said, Lukey, where do you want to go? And he said, Mama's bed to see Susan. I was like, well, Susan, where did that where did that come from? You know, and I was thinking, wasn't it just yesterday that he was just gooing and gogging? and there was no and it, it feels like it. You know, time just goes so quickly. In fact, somebody thought about how time moves and wrote this about it. It says, You know, you the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids. If you were less than 10 years old, you were so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? Well, I'm four and a half. You know, you're never 36 and a half. You are four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens and now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number. Even if you ahead. How old are you? Well, I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but one day you will be 16. Then, the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21, but then you turn 30. What happened there? It sounds like the milk turned. You turned 30. There's no fun now. You just soured. What's wrong? What's changed? You become 21. You turn 30. Then you're pushing 40. Put on the brakes here. It's all slipping away. Before you know it, you reach 50 and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would, but you do. So you become 21, you turn 30, you push 40, you reach 50, and you make it to 60. You built up so much speed now that you hit 70. And then it's just a day-to-day kind of thing. You hit Wednesday, you get into your 80s, and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, you turn 4.30, you reach bedtime. It doesn't end there. In the 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. And then a strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm 100 and a half. Now here's the truth. I hope we all live to be a hundred and a half. Statistics say we won't. But even if you live to be a hundred and a half in the grand scheme of eternity, that is but a small thing. It's like the grass that is cut and withers. It is like a vapor that vanishes. It is like steam. It's short. Luke chapter 7 verse 31 and 32 talks about the fact that That when we live our lives, so many of us just waste it. 
It says, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. Now, there are a lot of understandings of that passage, but but what I want you to focus on today is what Jesus is saying here is that God has provided you everything you need to live a full, meaningful life. And yet what you have done is you have just simply wasted it. You've just simply wasted it. And what he's saying to them is, if you don't take full opportunity of what God has given, then you are in the midst of living a life that is less than the best for you. And that God expects us every day to take advantage of what He puts into our past. He, descri- he, de- des- he wants us, desires for us to seize every moment for His glory. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about and read about is that Jesus lived passionately. Here's the second thing we're going to talk about is not only did He live passionately, but He loved completely. He loved completely. John chapter 13 is right in the midst of that upper room discourse, right in the midst of when Jesus is preparing His disciples for His death, right in the midst of His last night on earth with His disciples. And John chapter 13 was says, Jesus knew that the time had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew His days were numbered. He knew that on a couple of days He would be on that cross. He knew that everything was about to change for these guys. But in John chapter 13, 1, it tells us how He lived in those last hours. And it said, having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. He now showed them the full extent of His love. You know that story. What happens is that that is kind of an introduction for what happens to the rest of the chapter. And we see in that chapter that the way that He loves them is that He washes their feet and He talks to them about God and that He gives them the understanding that He is about to lay down His life for them. We see Him praying for them a little bit later. And that for the next few hours, what He does is that He shows them the full extent of His love. Here is what is amazing to me as I look at that passage of Scripture is this man who was also God in the flesh, who is facing death right head on, his last thought is, I've got to show these guys how much I love them. My last conversation with Susan's mom was over two weeks ago. It was on a Saturday afternoon. Susan was staying through the weekend. I was coming back. I could be here and and be a part of what we're doing here. Be here on Sunday morning. And Susan's mom and I had a very special relationship. I told him at the, the graveside that when we first met, she was actually a college leader in the college program I was directing at Inglewood. And then we gradually moved into the fact that I was now dating her daughter and I became the man that was going to take away her only daughter who was much younger than her brothers, the baby of the family, and so there was some suspicion that crept into that relationship. Some of you moms and dads understand, amen? Amen? You understand? All right, maybe you want people coming and taking your daughters, I guess. (laughs) Maybe you don't. All right, we'll move on. And then Miss Marilyn and I developed a relationship around books. She loved to read. I loved to read. But you know, we were still, I was the son-in-law, she was the mother-in-law. I remember the first uh, few years of our marriage, uh, I 
felt like I was the bumbling son-in-law. I was always trying to do things to impress her, and I always messed up. Knocked things over, said wrong things, did inappropriate things, you know, just whatever. I just Every time I tried to do something good, it turned out bad. But in these last couple of years, the relationship has changed. My conversation with her two weeks ago, I was at her bedside. I'd been there for the weekend, and at the end of her life, uh, Susan and her dad and uh, sister-in-laws and brothers and myself were having to take care of Marilyn at all times, having to do everything for her. And I had been there that weekend, and I had helped and done everything I could to help her be comfortable and help her, and she was still where she could talk and was in a good mind, and we had had some good conversations. But as we were getting ready to leave, I just leaned down, and she just simply said, Lyle, I want you to know I love you. And I'm proud of the way that you are a father to my grandchildren and a husband to my daughter. And I just want you to know I love you. As I thought about it, you know, we may have said that in passing. You know, in passing, we're saying goodbye, Thanksgiving, Christmas. She and I may have had a moment where we did that. I know we hugged when we left. but, But Marilyn and I were never the kind that would say that to each other all the time. But I knew this beyond a shadow of a doubt. We had never said those words to each other with the meaning that we said them that day. That's what I imagine happened with Jesus in the upper room. The days are coming to an end. He knows he's about to leave these guys, and he looks at them and he says, Guys, I love you. I want you to understand it. And while they may not have had a clue what was going on, when they looked back on that, when the Apostle John is writing the memoirs, when he is writing the Gospel, he says, you know what he did in those last days? Is he cared so much about us that he showed us his love. Now here's the question I have. Why does it take something like that for us? Now Jesus showed his love all the time, but why does it take something like that for us to show love to the people that we love in our lives? Jesus loved completely. Matthew 22, 37-39 tells us that the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the truth is, as I began to think through this, what would I do differently if I only had 30 days left to live? And the first things that came to mind is I would, I would, I would, I would get more into God's Word. I would, I would study more of what He had to say. I would pray more. I would be more in tune with who He was. I would spend more time with my wife. I would spend more time with my boys. I would spend more time with my family. The first things that came to mind is I would do more loving things. And God really just convicted me at that point. It says the point of you doing this is to come to a life where you're living it every day as if it's your last. So if someone were to ask you the question, what would you do differently if you had 30 days left to live? You would just simply say, nothing. Each day is a gift, and we must treat it as that way. John Maxwell, who's a leading Christian leader, or leader of Christian leaders, has a sign on his desk that simply says, Yesterday ended last night. And for some of you today, you've got husbands or wives that you need to love better. You've got children that you need to love better. You've got uh, extended family you need to love better. You've got parents you need to love better. You've got people in your life you need to love more. You've got people within this church family that you need to love more. And the truth is, it starts today. It starts today. Jesus loved completely. Here's the third principle. Not only did He live passion, not only did He love completely, but Jesus learned humbly. 
And I want you to think about the ironic statement there that Jesus learned humbly. It tells us in Luke that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. And so we know that while he was on the earth, Jesus learned. There, there are some people that think that, that when Jesus came to earth, he was born. And then at about six months to a year, he just started quoting the Torah or quoting the Old Testament. That's not what happened. He learned those things. When we see Jesus in the desert and he's tempted by Satan and he responds every time with a quote from Deuteronomy, that was not something God had programmed into him to automatically kick in. That was something that he gave up, that knowledge, to come to this earth and he learned it while he was here and that he gave his life to learning humbly. Now, Philippians chapter 2 that I use a lot because it's an unbelievable passage tells us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ who, although he was just like God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Every time I tell that passage, I give you the illustration that it's almost as if God says you can hold it if you want, but Jesus realized that he had to let go to do God's ultimate task to save us from our sins. And so he didn't hold on to his equality with God. There's the old illustration of, of the ways that they would catch monkeys sometimes in African tribes as they would put something inside of a container and your hand could fit through the container, but when you grabbed whatever was inside the fruit and you tried to pull it out, it would not come out with it because you were holding on to that fruit so tightly. And the monkeys so wanted the fruit, they would never let go. They would continue to grasp the fruit. Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That passage of Scripture tells us that each one of us in our lives have things that we need to learn. And learning only comes when we humble ourselves. The verse challenges us to be like Christ, and from what I've seen, There are only two things in our lives that can build our character to be like Christ. And one is God's Word. It's getting in God's Word in the Bible, studying it, understanding it, living what it says. And the other thing that that really does that is through the trials, the problems, the difficulties. That that what happens in our lives, that, that we have those problems in our lives, that those can be the things that God can use to develop that character and that patience and that concern and that compassion within us. And God can use that for His glory in an amazing way. And so one of the things that I would ask you to do in this one month to live is to think to yourselves, what is God wanting me to learn? Is there a problem in my life right now? Is there a concern in my life? Is there a difficulty in my life? Is there a crisis in my life? And what is it that God wants me to learn in the midst of that? Will I humble myself and allow myself to put God first and as a result seek His will in my life? Proverbs 3, 6 says, In everything you do, put God first and He will direct you and crown your efforts with success. In everything you do, put God first and He will direct you and crown your efforts with success. There are millions of books every year telling you the secret of success. They have different titles, they have different publishers, they have different authors, but they all want to give you their idea of success. There is no better thing you can understand, no better principles you can understand about what success really is except this. You are to put every thing you have aside and put God first. Let me ask you to make a commitment 
over the next 30 days as part of our one month to live challenge, I want to ask you to give God your first. There are four things I'm going to ask you to give God the first of just for this month. I'm going to challenge you for this month, and then I want you to see what happens in your life as a result of it. Over the next 30 days, I want you to give God the first day of every week. The first day of every week. What does that mean? I want you here. I want you to be a part of what we're doing. I want you to give Him a part of your life the first day of every week and say, I'm going to worship. Now let me say, I don't want you to give it begrudgingly. I don't want you to give it out of habit. Just as when you come into this worship center, when you come into this place where we're worshiping God, I don't want you to sing the songs or listen to the sermons or say the prayers or give the offering because you have to. I want you to do it because God calls us to do it and He will bless us if we do. I want you to give Him the first day of every week. Here's the second thing I want you to give. I want you to give the first part of every day. I want to challenge you to give God the first part of every day for this month. Now, when you leave today, if you haven't gotten already, you are going to be able to get this book called One Month to Live. We're giving it to you as you walk out the back door. There will be a table set up out there. The books will be on the table. You just take one, all right? And what we're asking you to do is starting tomorrow on day one, tomorrow is day one, you're going to read a little bit a day. Now, what I would invite you to do is to take a copy of God's Word, take this book. The book will take you five to ten minutes to read, and to read a little bit of both of them. Read the, each day and a little bit from Scripture for the first part of every day. Now, if you're a person that hasn't been doing that at all, I don't want you to say, I'm going to give an hour and a half to God in the morning. Okay? Because you won't. Say, I'm going to give Him ten minutes, fifteen minutes. And maybe over this month you develop that a little bit, but whatever you do, give God the first part of your day. The third thing is, out of what we've come out of with stewardship and what God's Word teaches, you need to give the first portion of your income. So over the next 30 days, you're going to give Him the first day of every week, the first part of every day, the first portion of your income. You're going to put God first. Give back the first part. Now, in Scripture, that first portion is 10%. And it's saying that in our lives, that if we're not giving God 10%, then we're not putting God first place in our finances so we're not putting God first place in our lives. And so you need to give the first portion to God. And here's the last thing. I want you to give Him first consideration on every decision. As part of this learning humbly through this process, every decision that you make, I want you to ask, what would God have me to do? What would be God's will in my life for this? On every decision, He wants you to pray about everything in your business, in your family, in your relationships. You know, the reality is, I talk to a lot of people as a pastor that have, have kind of got messes in their lives, and some of those messes are things that are completely outside of what we do, but some of those messes are directly related to all our poor decisions. And if we would seek God first and get wisdom from Him, we would be able to make much better decisions. So Jesus lived passionately. He loved completely. He learned humbly. Here's the last thing. Jesus left boldly. Jesus left boldly. I love what Luke 9.51, just write that down out in the margin somewhere, says. As the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely 
set out for Jerusalem. One version of that, one, one uh, translation of that says, Jesus set His attention on Jerusalem. And this is what I love about Jesus. Is that when we get to the end of His life, He doesn't go out with a whimper. He doesn't go out just kind of, kind of fading into the background. When He leaves, He leaves boldly. He leaves with an impact for the kingdom of God. Now let me say something just for a minute to our senior adults here, okay? You know, one of the things that I love about this church is that we have so many senior adults that are committed to doing what God has called them to do. And I just want to tell you that we live in a culture that sometimes wants to tell us that when you get to be a certain age, it's time to just kind of fade into the background. Let me tell you that Scripture teaches and that what God wants us to understand is that you were intended to live on this earth as long as God intended you to live on this earth, making an impact and a mark on people that are here. And so I would challenge you, senior adults, to read this book and ask the question, how am I going to leave boldly for the kingdom of God? How am I going to leave boldly for Him? It tells us that Jesus once says at the end of our lives, that when we get to heaven, that there's going to be this kind of welcoming party. And in one of the parables, he tells us that when he gets to the welcoming party, this person walks up and the master replies, Well done, good and faithful servant. One of the things that I know watching sports as much as I do is that it doesn't really matter how you start, it's how you finish, right? You know, the world's a little upside down these days, isn't it? I mean, I, I can't tell from day to day what the stock market's going to do. The presidential debates are here this week. Things are going crazy all over the place, and even Vanderbilt is 5-0 and or something. <laughs> and here's the crazy thing. I'm actually rooting for them. That's crazy. My team decided they didn't want to play this year, so I'm going to... Root for Vanderbilt. That even sounded weird coming out of my mouth. I'm going to root for Vanderbilt. Joyce, you, you all right over here? Okay. And here's the thing about last night's game. Big game, right? Big game. College game day was here. Lee Corso was here. Kirk Herbstreet, Craig Fowles. Some of you don't know who those are. That's all right. But it's a big game. Game day was here. College football world focused on Vanderbilt University. I went out to eat last night. I didn't, I'm rooting for him. I'm still not making an appointment on television to watch, all right? We went out to eat last night, and I was sitting there, and I had my phone with me, and I got an update on the score, and real soon into the game, it was what? 13 to nothing. You know my first thought? Well, there's Vanderbilt. Been here before, happened before. A few years ago, we're there, and then it was Middle Tennessee State. You know, there it is. I kind of wrote them off. That's not how the game finished, is it? No. Some of you no. Because they finished well. I was reading something online this morning about their season, and they said the thing is about Vanderbilt this year that makes them different is the second half belongs to them, and they always finish well. Let me tell you something. My prayer is that they would say about the people that attend First Baptist Church Goodlessville is that the second half of their lives is devoted to God and they always finish well. 
over the next few days, what we're going to ask you to do is to commit to live your life. And I don't mean just saying, all right, we'll read the book. I mean commit to living your life as if it was your last 30 days on earth. Tomorrow is the first day of the last month of your life. Every day you're going to read. Every day you're going to be in God's Word. Every week you're going to be together. And in the midst of all of that, the question you're going to ask is, what does God have for me to do?